Well, good morning, everybody. I was really worried nobody was going to come because it's Memorial Day weekend, and yet here you are. And it's nice to have uh, winter back, isn't it? <laughs> what on earth is that all about? Good grief. So I'm hoping it warms up a little bit because I know everybody wants to get out in the sunshine tomorrow. Now, we've been in a two-week series. This is the second week of two weeks called Majoring on the Minors because if you've been following around in your reading along since January 1st, you would know that we have reached now the end of the Old Testament. We've come all the way through the Old Testament. And by the way, if you're one of the ones, one of the few, one of the remnant... (laughs) that has made it all the way through. Congratulations, that's a ton of reading in five and a half months, and so thankful to you, you've gotten all the way through Scripture. Now, here's the deal. If you haven't, it's okay. Jump in where we, where we leave off. You can find the reading plan right there on the app, right there on our website. Jump in with us because it's important. And again, it's a lot of Scripture. We're going through the entire Bible in six months. We're taking all these Bibles and on Sunday morning sort of giving a 30,000-foot air view of, of what the books are about. So we're not diving too deeply, but we're just getting all the way through Scripture. But again, the big point of this is not for you just to get through the Scripture, but that the Scripture gets through you, right? And gets through me. That's the big point. So the last two weeks here going into the New Testament, we're studying the minor prophets. Now they're called minor prophets simply because the length of the book, okay? These prophets are minor prophets because they're shorter books in the Bible, but they had a major impact in their cultures in that day. So just because they're shorter books doesn't mean that their messages are any less important than they were uh, with the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so as you see behind me, we pull up this same time timeline that Pastor Jonathan used last week, and you can see all these prophets listed. And then over there and see the blue, it says the 70 years of captivity. That is in relation to the Babylonian captivity because there was a moment there, started in 605, kind of three different waves there, but by 586 or so, the people of Israel were in total captivity by the Babylonians. Well, shortly into that Babylonian reign and their captivity, you'll find this story right there in Daniel chapter 5, the Persians take over the Babylonian empire. And so now they're being ruled by the Persians. And so what happens is, is that you have these guys rise up in leadership among the the Jewish people. Uh, One guy was named Zerubbabel, and they approach the king, and they say, look, we want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Well, the king of Persia was a pretty gracious guy, and so he not only helps them go back, he helps fund the whole deal. They send a remnant of exiles from the kingdom of Persia back to Jerusalem. And so that's when you begin to read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and even Esther happened in that time period. And so that's where that comes from. And if you notice, these prophets, uh, Habakkuk, well, after that, see Ezekiel, then do you see these prophets, Zechariah and Haggai? Those two prophets came along during the first remnant of Jerusalem, I mean, the first remnant of the Jews coming back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They were under the leadership of Zerubbabel. You read about him in Ezra uh, chapters one through five or so. And Zerubbabel is tasked with rebuilding this temple. Well, along the way, about one to two years into the process, they just stopped. They got nervous. The Samaritans were giving them a hard time. People from the government were giving a hard time locally. And the Jewish people just decided, you know what, we've got other interests. And so rather than doing what they came back to do, they just stopped the work. And they stopped for 16 years. 
And then along comes in 520 BC a prophet by the name of Haggai. God raised him up. And it's interesting because the ministry of Haggai was only about five months long, actually a little less than five months. The first message he preached was on August 29th of 520 BC. And then the next message he preached was September 21st of, of 520 BC. And the next message was October 17th. And then the last two were December 18th. All within about four and a half month period, God gives this man messages and a ministry specifically to Zerubbabel and the leadership and the priests and the people of Jerusalem. And his message was very simple. Start rebuilding the temple. Get to work. Consider your ways, he says in chapter one. You've been building houses for yourselves. You've been distracted. Now, get to work. Start doing this. And so here's the crazy thing about the book of Haggai. It's so rare. In fact, you only see this one other time. I think it's in the book of Jonah when the people of Nineveh actually listened to Jonah and they repented. This is the only other time I can find where the people actually did what the prophet told them to do. They repented. And they started working on the temple. Well, at the same time Haggai was preaching his messages, along comes another prophet by the name of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a different kind of prophet. Haggai was kind of like this old preacher guy. He was about 80 years old, and he was really in your face, and he's kind of kicking your shin type of preacher, right? Zechariah comes along, and he's more of a put his arms around you and kind of encourage you along the way kind of preacher. And so he's encouraging the people the same time Haggai is, but the message is virtually the same. Repent, get back to work on the temple. The difference is, with Zechariah, his language is much more prophetic in nature. He has messianic type of visions where he is not just encouraging the rebuilding of the temple, but he's also seeing visions where God is giving him uh, apocalyptic kind of visions to where he's seeing the coming Messiah. And so there's all kinds, especially chapters 9 through 14, all kinds of language about the coming Messiah and the second coming of Jesus as well. And so we read about all those in those later chapters in Zechariah. So Zechariah is really important to us because it's kind of like reading the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. It's full of prophecy, and believe it or not, Zechariah is quoted over 40 times in the New Testament. So it's a very important book full of messages about the coming Messiah. So you have these two prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah living virtually at the same time. Haggai was much older than Zechariah. Zechariah preached and did his ministry all the way up until about 470 AD. Then there's silence for about 50 years. Nehemiah comes to town and his job is to rebuild the walls. And then along the same time as Nehemiah, God raises up another prophet. But this time, it's kind of like the last voice you hear before 400 years of silence. And this prophet was an Italian by the name of Malachi. He's a really cool guy. That's a joke, okay? <laughs> People are like, are you serious? He was like, no. <laughs> yeah, he talked like this, you know what I'm saying? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. He was, a, he, was a, he was raised up as part of the Jewish people. His name was Malachi. And the thing is, is that cynicism had set in. Apathy was in the hearts of the people because here they have listened to the promises of Jeremiah. They listened to all the encouraging words from Zechariah. They've obeyed the, the preaching of Haggai to a certain extent, but yet over the course of those next 50, 60, 70 years, suddenly they're back to being apathetic. And so God raises up a, a prophet by the name of Malachi to show them their sin. In fact, when you read the book of Malachi, it's almost like reading the book of James in the New Testament where the message is simple. It's faith without works is, is dead. Now, the book of Malachi is written in sort of what we call a dialectic uh, way. And it's, it's, it's like a dialogue between God and the people. And, and there's a pattern that you'll see in the book of Malachi happens six different times. 
God will say something, the people respond with a bit of a cynical answer or a question, and then God just pretty much lays down the law and blisters them. That's how it works, all right? And so chapter one, we jump in, and I'm using the New Living Translation today because I just feel like it's a little easier to read from this particular book of Malachi. Chapter one, verse one, this is the message. Some translations say this, this is the burden I love that, that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Verse two, I have always loved you. I love the way that starts. Right at the top of his message, even though he preaches a hard message, the first thing he says, God says, I have always loved you. But then the people respond, really? How have you loved us? What? Are you kidding me? Really? Hundreds of years of history that I've stuck by your side and you're wondering how? Y'all, I'm just gonna tell you right now, it's a good thing I wasn't God at this moment because I'd have been like, okay, that's it. You're done. That's what I would have done. But God is so patient. He's so kind. He says, well, look, I, I, I showed my love for you. I, I loved your ancestor Jacob more than I loved Esau. I was faithful to him. You're the direct descendants of this one man, Jacob. So how have I loved you? Well, let me count the ways. Look at this. Look at this. From the beginning of time, from the creation with Adam and Eve, all the way to the covenant I made with Abraham. And then Abraham took matters into his own hand. I promised him a son. And him and Sarah couldn't be patient enough. They couldn't believe me. And so they, it, she gives him Hagar. Man, I get so frustrated every time I watch the news because I watch these guys bombing each other, and it all goes back to that right there. The descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac have been at war for 4,000 years, and you saw it last week. It's constant. Ugh, it makes me so frustrated because I just feel like if Hagar had not shown up, then you got Jacob and Esau, and of course, through Jacob, he has the 12 sons, and, and, and Joseph is one of those sons, and then they, they end up in Egypt, and then there's the Egyptian captivity that goes on for 400 years, and then God raises up Moses, right? Right out of Egypt. And Moses takes them into this wilderness, and for 40 years, they wander around the wilderness, not because God doesn't love them, but because they're unfaithful, because of their sin. And it's in the wilderness that they get the law written and then all those books of the law, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, all that stuff happens while they're in that wilderness. And then of course Joshua rises up and they take him into, God takes them into the promised land. And then after that you have the period of the judges where everybody did right in their own eyes. And on and on and on and on it goes. And throughout all of the history, throughout all of it, God stays faithful and the people don't. God loves them, and the people turn their back on him. And it happens over and over and over and over again. And it's so frustrating to watch, and it breaks the heart of God, and yet through it all, he always provides a remnant. And we even still see that today in modern history, don't we? Where Hitler tried to eradicate the entire race of Jews, but God raised up a remnant. And in 1948, that remnant gathered together in one place called Israel, and they're still alive today. And now they're completely surrounded by enemies, constantly barraged with bombs and missiles and all kinds of stuff. And now you have anti-Semitism rising up all over the world because of last week, even though they were being attacked by terrorists, for crying out loud. You see it happening all over the world. 
And all I can say is, they better be careful because God's people aren't going anywhere. By the way, and this is just a side note, but as Americans, we need to pray for Israel. And we need to stand behind Israel. Always, always, always. Because I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm going to make a statement right here, and this is not a political statement. This is a biblical statement of the surest foundation. The day America turns its back on Israel is the day God turns his back on America. We must pray for Israel. We must stand behind the people of Israel. Why? Because they are, according to Zechariah, the apple of God's eye. So God stays behind them, stays with them, walks before them, continues to provide for them. Why? I have always loved you, he says. So it sort of begs the question this morning, how do we respond to God's love? How are they supposed to respond to God's love? Well, the answer is quite simple, with worship, with the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment to me is the best definition of worship there is. You'll find it in Deuteronomy chapter six, but Jesus quotes it when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He says these words, to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I can't think of a better definition of worship than that, Steve, to love God with everything that you are and everything that you have. So if our response to God's love is to love him back, then through the book of Malachi, he speaks to his people and says, okay, let me tell you how you can love me. Let me tell you what I expect. So I got four little points for you, and we'll be done by 1.30. Here's what it says. First point. God's love expects our finest. In the first chapter of Malachi, you see that the priests are offering defiled gifts at the offer. God calls it useless fires that they're burning on the altar. In other words, back in those days, they would always do these animal sacrifices, right? And they would offer an animal sacrifice and, 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 and its blood would, would, would sort of be a picture of the atonement or the forgiveness of their sins. And you see it most vividly on the day of Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of Atonement when the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies. And it was such an important moment that he would have bells at the bottom of his robe because if his life wasn't pure, he would drop dead on the spot. That's how powerful this moment was. And they had a bell that because if the bell stopped ringing, there was also a rope attached to his ankle and had to literally drag him out because he, he died on the spot. So this holy of holies is there. And inside the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And the great high priest would walk in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would have sacrificed a spotless goat, a blemish-free goat out in front of the temple, and he would take the blood of that goat and sprinkle it across the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, the Bema Seed, as a way of offering, uh, uh, asking forgiveness to God for the atonement of our sins, for the forgiveness of our, of our sins for the people. And this was for the, all the people in Israel. And then he would go back out, and there was another goat that would be sitting there, and he'd be tied to a rope, and they would let that goat free. William Tyndale coined the phrase. He said that's what they would call the scapegoat. The, the goat would then go free as a picture of God's forgiveness over the people. Now, what would happen is, then days of Malachi, people, the, the priests were offering sacrifices, but instead of offering sacrifices that were blemish-free or, or, or pure or spotless, they were keeping those for themselves, and they would take the lame animals or the, or the diseased animals, and they would offer those as sacrifices. And God says, no, 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 no. That's not what I want. 
I've told you since the book of Leviticus, way back in the time of the wilderness, that what you need to give me is the best sacrifice, not the worst. And yet they were doing just the opposite. So God is frustrated and he's disappointed in them. And the point is simply this, that worship demands our pure-hearted sacrifice. And I have to ask you this morning, do you, do you offer God your best? He expects your finest. He takes these things seriously. Like when you come to church on Sunday morning, do you, do you come with a, with a sharp mind, a, a positive attitude, a, a, a grateful heart, a humble heart? Man, let the love of God break our hearts from the sin of apathy that was so prevalent in the lives of those priests in the day of Malachi. But the second thing he does is he doesn't just expect our finest, but God's love also demands our, our faithfulness. See, what was happening is, is not only were the priests offering uh, blemished sacrifices on the altar that was unpleasing to God, but their lives themselves were blemished. They were full of sin. And they were literally just running around on their own wives and seeking after pagan women who worshipped other gods. And, and this filtered down into the, to the men and, and, the, uh, and the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. And, and suddenly now you've got all these men of, of Jerusalem who are cheating on their wives and being unfaithful to their to their spouses. In fact, God says in chapter 2, here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. You're weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasures. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? He says this, I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Folks, when you enter marriage, it is a covenant relationship. It is a bond between you two, and it is a covenantal bond until the day you die. That's why the words are said in your vows, till death do we part. The reason God takes that so seriously is because it is a picture of the covenant he made with his own people. He's not going anywhere, so you better not either. And so the issue of marriage and defiling your marriage bed is a really big deal to God. If I say I love you to my wife and then I'm not faithful to her, do I really love her at all, really? If I'm 99% faithful to my wife, she would call me 100% unfaithful. And, that, and that's not just by way of relationships with other women, but, but it also goes by way of lust. That's why pornography is such a dangerous industry, folks. 50% of all Christian males view pornography once a week. 30% of all women. This is a big problem we have. And one of the reasons, just one is such a big reason, it's such a big problem, is because you're literally cheating on your spouse when you view this stuff. Because you're lusting after another woman. Or you're lusting after another man. God says, don't do this. Don't do this. And if you're addicted to something like that, or there's a problem with that in your life, please don't leave here today without seeking help. We'll have pastors down here at the front when the service is over. People are walking out. Nobody will even know you've approached one of us. But please come and let us help you because it will destroy your life. That and other sins just like it. Because how we live really does matter to God. 
God says, I want you to stay faithful. Let the love of God cause us to guard our hearts. And that's exactly what he says there in Malachi chapter two. Guard your heart. Remain faithful to your wife. I hate divorce, says the Lord. Divorcing your wife is is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's army. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now, I know that some of you in this room, you have a history and you've done that. And, and, And you know what? The past is the past. But we still worship the God who restores, the God who forgives. So if you've made mistakes in the past, come back to the Lord and don't do it anymore. God's love expects our finest. God's love demands our faithfulness. God's love demands that we stay faithful to our loved ones and to him. So guard your heart from sin as if you were guarding the front door of your house from an intruder. It's that intense. It's that important. But then Malachi reminds us that God's love is worthy of our firsts. Whew, now he's gone to meddling because now he's talking about money. He's not just talking about faithfulness to your spouse. Now he starts talking about their own money. He says this in chapter 10, I mean chapter 3, verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple if you do says the Lord of heaven's armies. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try me, put me to the test. You know, there's been a lot of debate over the years on the issue of tithing. Are we supposed to tithe? Is it an Old Testament practice or is it a New Testament practice? What's supposed to be done? Do we tithe from the gross? Do we tithe from the net? Do we tithe? Well, here's what I'll tell you. First of all, tithing is a very much a practice in the Old Testament, except it wasn't given 10%. Actually, tithing in the Old Testament was 23%. How does that bless your heart? Yeah, because they did three different tithes, not just one. All right, the first tithe was a general tithe. That went, it was a nation, so it went to the national government. They gave their money to help fund the stuff that the government would provide as a nation of Israel. But then there was a worship tithe. That was their produce, their plants, a lot of the things that they grew, and that went to the sanctuary for sanctuary worship and their feasts and everything else. And then every third year, they took a welfare tithe, which was an additional 10% that particular year from your income that went to uh, paying the Levites, helping the orphans, helping the widows and all those kind of things. So it equates to, on average, 23.3% of your income per year every year that went to a tithe. And here we are complaining about our 10%, right? But here's the thing. When you start going to the New Testament, people go, well, is tithing in the New Testament? Well, not really. I mean, it, it is. Jesus mentions it to the Pharisees, and you can certainly make an argument for it. But really, the New Testament model of giving is not just 10%. It's everything. In Acts, when you see the beginning of the church, which we're about to jump into here in just a few weeks, people weren't expected to just give 10%. They were expected to give it all. All. Wow. So here's the point. To give 10% of your income as a tithe to the Lord, to me, biblically speaking, I could say, I really do believe this, I could stand on this biblically, is the absolute minimum. The absolute minimum. God doesn't just deserve 10%. That's almost like a tip. He deserves it all, but at the very least, we should give him 10%. At the very least. And here's what I can say, and I can say this from personal testimony. I have learned in my life, when I tithe, and I started this when I was a little kid when my dad gave me a $5 a week allowance, when I tithe, God blesses me. 
He does. And it's crazy, and you may not believe me because you may be thinking right now, there's no way I can afford to give 10% of my income to the church. Let me just tell you this. God will do more with your 90% than you could ever do with your 100%. And I say that seriously as a personal testimony. And I look around the room and I see other people shaking their head because you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's no way to describe it. I can't understand it. Only God can do it, but he does it every time. So he'll do way more with your 90% than you can do with your 100%. And also, you can't outgive God. The more you give God, the more he gives you. I don't know how to describe it. It's a miracle that takes place, but it really does happen. So let me encourage you folks to practice the wisdom of first in your life. Give God the first tenth of every dollar. Give God the first hour of every day. Give God the first day of every week, and you just wait and see how much he blesses you. He really can. And you may be thinking, seriously, I can't afford to do this. I can't afford to tithe. Can I just tell you this? In my word, in my mind, you can't afford not to tithe. And it's for your benefit. We're doing great at Thomas Road. All right, you guys are faithful givers, and I'm telling you what, we're in better shape now than we've ever been, even through a pandemic. You guys are faithful givers. So this is not about getting more money for Thomas Road. This is about you receiving the blessing of God in your life that he promises you. In fact, the only place in the Bible where he says this, try me, I dare you, prove me on this, and I'll bless you. And he really, really does. So, God's love expects our finest. God's love demands our faithfulness. God's love is worthy of our firsts. But let me give you one more. God's love secures our future. In chapter three, verse one, listen to the words of the Lord through Malachi. Look, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. That first my messenger right there, all right, is a direct reference to John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus called John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets because he's the last voice we'll hear from before the Messiah makes his way into his ministry. So we have a direct reference to the coming of John the Baptist right there in the first half of chapter three, verse one. But then listen to this phrase. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord you are seeking. Did you catch that? The messenger of the covenant. This is a direct reference to the first coming of Christ, whom you look for so eagerly. He is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So in verse 1, you have a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, and you have a prophecy of the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Now look at verse 2. But, he, but who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal. Does that sound like the first time Jesus came? Mm -mm. That's a direct reference to the second time Jesus is coming. So in the first two verses of chapter 3, you have a direct prophecy on the coming of John the Baptist, a direct prophecy of the coming of the Messiah the first time when he came to Bethlehem and was born in a manger. And then you have in the second verse a direct prophecy of the second coming of Jesus. Now here's the deal I want to drive home to you today. You and I are living in between Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 3.2. We are living in the midst of 2,000 years of grace. Jesus has already come, but he hasn't come back yet. 
So then the Bible says in chapter three, verse six, God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. Wait, now in chapter one, verse two, he says, I have always loved you. So could we make then the conclusion that if God has always loved us and he's the Lord and does not change, that he still loves us and he always will. And the greatest display of love ever in the history of mankind was when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you want life, you got to come to Jesus. Have you done that today? Do you know him? If you don't, you'll have an opportunity to meet him. You'll have an opportunity to know him before we end this hour together. But the ultimate display of love of God for us is Jesus. And he came for such a time as this. And as you know, we're about to go into 400 years of silence. There's a blank page after Malachi before you go to the New Testament. That blank page represents 420 years of silence. And then suddenly, all this prophecy comes to fruition. But go back to Yom Kippur. Remember we talk about that sacrifice of the gold at the front of the temple? Remember how we're talking about how because of that they offered an atonement for the sin of the people? Well, when God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, God made him the ultimate sacrifice for us. And on the point of death on the cross, that was the moment where no more sacrifices were necessary. Because, you see, now, instead of the sheep dying for the shepherd, the great shepherd had come and died for the sheep. And do you know that at the very point of the death of Jesus on the cross, in that same temple, that same second temple of Jerusalem, where the priest would stand out in front and sacrifice that goat and sprinkle that blood over the Ark of the Covenant, in that same temple, there was a veil that stood before the Holy of Holies, and it was 30 feet tall and 30 inches thick. And when Christ died on the cross, the sky went black and there was an earthquake. And during that earthquake, that veil that stood between the Holy of Holies and the inner court of the second temple of Jerusalem tore from top to bottom. Significant that the Bible says top to bottom because that means no human being could tear that thing from, you, you can't reach 30 feet in the air. God ripped that thing in half. And it was him in saying to you and me, now you can. Because of the sacrifice of my son, now you can. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. And it's not just meant for Jewish people. Now it's meant for everybody. Gentiles, Greeks, Virginians. It's meant for all of us. Now we can come boldly before the throne of grace because of the sacrifice that he made for us. Innocent blood had to be shed for the remission of our sin. There had to be a spotless sacrifice. It's always been that way. And Jesus became that spotless sacrifice for us. Let the love of God heal our hearts with the forgiveness of our sin. God's love is worthy of our repentance. He's the embodiment, the greatest expression of love that the human heart can fathom. And he was here, and he suffered, and he bled, and he died, and he rose again. And yet, they missed it. They missed it. On Monday, 
August 21st, 1911, three Italian thieves who were working at the Louvre in Paris walked out of the side door carrying a box that weighed about 200 pounds and they put it in a carriage and rode off. About 20 hours later, there's a painter in the middle of the Louvre standing in a hallway and he's wanting to paint the hallway. But he's upset because there's a blank space on the wall and he refuses to paint the hallway until somebody tells him what goes in the blank space. And that's the moment when the curators of the museum realize at the Louvre, oh, there's a missing painting and it just happens to be the Mona Lisa. Now, up until that point, the Mona Lisa was really not that big of a deal. Nobody really knew about it. They knew it was a nice painting and art, you know, the, the, the real purists, they knew it was a masterpiece, but the public really didn't have anything to, they didn't think much about it. And so if you went to the Louvre before August of 1911, you would have probably just passed by the Mona Lisa, no big deal, right? Well, suddenly it's missing. And it's been missing for 28 hours. And nobody even knew it was gone. Nobody cared. Well, when it turns up missing, suddenly it makes headlines. And by the next day, it was on every headline and every major newspaper in the world. And suddenly the Mona Lisa, which was no big deal, has now become the most famous and most valuable painting in the entire universe. So obviously the Louvre's got some security issues. These were three employees that just walked off with one of their masterpieces and they didn't even know it. So they fix a bit of some security issues, they fire a few people, and they reopen the museum two weeks later. What they didn't expect is when they reopened, they would have the largest crowds they'd ever had. The people were lined up everywhere, and guess what they were doing? They were all coming to the Louvre to see one thing, the place where the Mona Lisa used to hang. <laughs> it was gone. Well, 28 months later, they finally recovered it. But it's amazing to me, and it's such a vivid point, that we sometimes don't appreciate what we've got until it's gone. The people didn't appreciate the message of Malachi until it was too late. The people didn't appreciate the presence of our Jesus until it was too late. People don't appreciate the opportunity to worship together until a pandemic comes. And people don't appreciate each other sometimes until they're gone. That's why every time I stand in Jerusalem and I stare at that empty tomb, I think about that story of the Mona Lisa because it's empty and yet thousands of people come by it every day now through hundreds of years of history and I wonder, I just wonder how many of them are still missing it. They still miss it. So don't miss this morning the love of God in your life. If you need someone to love, then you better do it now. If you need forgiveness, you better seek it now. If you need to repent before God, do it now. Because is he worthy of our finest? Yeah, he is. Does his love demand our faithfulness? Yes, it does. does his, is his love worthy of our first? Oh yes, it is, and so much more. And because of his love, he has paid for our forgiveness, and he holds our future in his hands. Oh, folks, we have so much to be grateful for, the beautiful, the matchless, the indescribable and infinite love of God. The message of Malachi, the message of the Old Testament, 
The message of the New Testament and the message of the cross of Christ is so profound that there's not enough sermons we could preach or books we could write to adequately describe it. And yet, it is so simple that you can wrap it all up into three words. God loves you. Let me give you three more. He always has. Three more. He always will. Will you bow your heads with me? As we close today, I just want us to take a moment and reflect on the powerful and matchless love of God. If you don't have anywhere to be, I would ask you just to, in the stillness of this moment, stand quietly and let's just thank the Lord for his love. If you need to make your way down this aisle to ask the Lord's forgiveness, to seek him, to ask him into your heart, to become a Christian, maybe there's an addiction you're dealing with like pornography or whatever it might be, whatever, whatever it is, the altar is open now. But I'm gonna ask that you would be still and be quiet and listen closely and intently to these words that remind us so vividly of the power of the love of God. Natalie, would you sing it for us? How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure There's two more verses to that wonderful song that are so powerful. We're out of time, so here's what I would encourage you to do as you go. I would encourage you to reflect on the love of God today and be reminded of the greatest commandment there is, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, like Malachi would say, just do it. Just do it. God bless you guys. We love you. Happy Memorial Day weekend, all right? Good night. Good afternoon. Goodbye. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. Now, if you'd like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we'd love to chat with you about that information. I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen. It's pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. If you'd also like to help contribute to our ministries, we take this message of the gospel around the world. Go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love. Help us let people know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, and that we can find hope in Jesus.